This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inderst, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Stefan Hölkin about his new book, Open History. His book is based on his CSD thesis in computer science, where he tried to find an alternative way to think about computer history. When common historiographies regularly focus the computer either as an economic scientific tool or build investor stories and anecdotes around it, Stefan Hölkgen tries to make the computer tell itself about its history in terms of an alien historiography. Here, hardware, software, and knowledge are no artifacts but operative matters that only exist in presence. Stefan, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello, everybody. Stefan, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Of course, including your favorite game and gaming hardware you're playing on right now. Okay. Um, I think I will start with uh, the last part. Um, my favorite gaming hardware is any computer, um, um, any analog or digital computer and um, my favorite game is the game of life hmm. uh, which is not a proper game in the sense of of video gamings we are speaking about today but a, a, a kind of experiment from the 1960s 1970s where the computer plays against itself uh, um, and where you can use the game for uh, different purposes like finding about how uh, finding out um, about how the computer functions and uh, learning about automat theory and um, uh, making nice pixel graphics and uh, learning about uh, uh, storage technologies and so on. So, so I'm, I'm not a regular video gamer, but more a kind of scientific gamer. Hmm. Yeah, um, that's uh, one point of my, my biography I can uh, tell you about. Um, after f finishing my uh, studies in Jena uh, in, in the beginning of the 2000s, I I moved uh, to Bonn uh, to do my PhD 
and there I worked on on um, on a discourse analysis of um, serial killer movies. Um, I tried to find out about how um, the topics of violence and the topics of um, uh, cr criminology are discussed within the movies and if there is an exchange between culture and the movies. And I finished that um, PhD thesis in 2009. And then I moved to Berlin to become a postdoc at the Department of Media Science there at the Humboldt University. And there I did a research project uh, called um, The Archaeology of Early Microcomputers and Their Programming, um, which, of course, uses a bit different term of archaeology, not the term you know um, from Jana Jones, but more you know from Michel Foucault. And uh, there in um, Berlin at Humboldt uh, University, Friedrich Kittler and others started in the 1980s, 1990s to make a kind of new archaeology based on Michel Foucault, um, um, which they called media archaeology. And I used this media archaeology to examine computer history. Okay, so... Um, When I first thought of doing a habilitation on this topic, um, I um, found out that there would be no, no supervisor um, at the faculty. So I changed my mind and moved to the computer science department. And there I found uh, someone who would um, make an, an SCD thesis uh, or, or, or supervise this as an SCD thesis. And so I finished this as an SCD thesis in 2000. And 20. And then I made this book, um, Rudolf um, told about open history, um, uh, the archaeology of retro, uh, retro computing. Um, right now, um, after 11 years, I finish, I'm about to finish my job that, there at Humboldt University and change uh, back to Bonn uh, to the media studies there to start a, a research project on the uh, cultural history of basic programming. Basic is a computer programming language um, established in the 1960s uh, for uh, um, liberal arts students and not for computer scientists or mathematics, but it uh, um, soon changed uh, into culture or moved into culture where at the beginning of the 1970s, those small computers, the home computer era starts and all of those computers had built in basic interpreters and um, a huge load of, of hobbyistic programs and of, of uh, especially basic games um, uh, came to life. And um, this, this archive of basic games is the topic of my new research project. I want to find out about how did uh, the people back in the day program their games in basic, are there different styles to find, uh, um, uh, are there differences between English game programmers and German game programmers and French programmers and so on. And this will last for the next three years and um, hopefully conclude in a new book. That's all I have to say. <laughs> right now of course i hope yeah, yeah. so um i want to circle back to to the book itself open history um please tell us a bit more about how did you come to write it in the first place yeah yeah regularly um, if you're doing a, a doctorate you have to write a thesis and this book is based on the thesis um I used a trick uh, that I already used with my first uh, thesis. I published the original thesis as a PDF uh, on the servers of the university to gain my doctor uh, uh, um, certificate. And um, uh, then I had the um, opportunity to change some parts of the book and to put other 
pictures into it and to publish as a regular book. Yeah, and um, this book um, um, is uh, fresh on the market. Uh, um, it, it came out in, in, in early August. Um, and it uh, concludes, of course, the whole PA, uh, SCD thesis, uh, but some more parts and an index and, uh, as I said, more pictures. Um, it is not straight about games and gaming, but more since its, um, its um, uh, topic is retro computing, of course, um, there are retro games uh, discussed into the book. And uh, the, the topic of software preservation is uh, an, an important topic of the book. So um, software preservation um, is, is a topic for, for game history and for other software genres as well. And I uh, uh, try to find out there within other topics um, how to uh, preserve game history and keep it operative so it, that you could play the games um, but uh, uh, what, what, what tools do we need? Do we need the real hardware? Do we need emulators? Um, or um, how, how, how can we preserve the gaming process and, and the games uh, um, to, to uh, play them again and again, even today when the old hardware does not exist? Yeah, but that's just one of the topics of the book. Um, um, since the supervisor from my SCD thesis came from the... From the um, 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 didactics of informatics, um, I had to choose a topic which is entangled with didactics. And um, as I said earlier, uh, back in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, people um, learned programming with their small computers and mostly were autodidacts. And um, um, uh, yeah, work with trial and error processes to, to learn about their computers and learn about programming. And I wanted to find out if these trial and error processes and learning by doing processes, uh, this kind of didactics is entangled with uh, the Foucaultian uh, term of uh, gaining to knowledge, gaining to knowledge in our culture. And uh, so I, um, let's say, um, I, I planned the heart of the book um, as four experiments I did with the students where... Uh, I had to give seminars at the uh, um, um, media studies, uh, media science department there in Humboldt University. And we did retro computing projects there to find about how um, we are doing this, even if we are no technicians or if we are no computer scientists or programmers. And um, um, these experiments are, um, focus on four topics, um, as I said earlier, on, on, on video games and simulation topics with Game of Life, or on hardware preservation projects, how to repair an old computer, even if I'm not a repairman, or on the question of um, emulators and, and video gaming um, with, with old computers, old hardware, and um, with the question of programming languages and how how programming and programming languages is, uh, are, are connected to, to natural languages. Like, like uh, if I borrow or if I copy an algorithm from one program and put it into my own program, is it just a copyright infringement or can it be seen as a kind of, as a kind of um, 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 reception, like, like in literature when someone borrows a topic from the literature history to use it in its uh, own novel in his own novel 
I see. So uh, first of all, let me thank you for this for this tiny PhD publication a life hack you are actually providing here. So our listeners will appreciate that. I'm pretty sure. Um, let me start by telling you when I first read through your book, I had the impression, and please correct me here if I'm wrong, that you actually dedicate more pages to the current state of research within your field as one would normally expect within a PhD. So is this observation correct? And if so, why is it of such significance to you? Yeah, I think it's correct. Um, since uh, I, I let me say, I, I came from the outside. I came um, f from the from the humanities. Um, I regularly studied literature studies uh, in the nineties, um, and I had nothing had nothing to do with computer science besides my hobbyistic interests. And when I moved to the computer science department to do this SCD thesis, um, I thought I had to. Uh, uh, learn about computer science and informatics and put as much as I learned uh, about that topic and as much knowledge as I gained about that topic into my SCD thesis. And then I found out that um, there are really um, original ideas uh, from the from the uh, from the humanities uh, uh, departments and from the media studies I, I worked on, uh, which are very unknown by computer scientists they they don't think about their their own own history in such terms as a as a historian would do and um, so it was more like um let me say let me say teaching computer science uh, about or computer scientists about the ways of historiography and the ways of criticism of historiography we all know about uh, since the early 20th century in the humanities. Uh, so since there are more in techniques and there are more in building and there are more in progress and not uh, so much in looking backwards and analyzing the own, their own history, it was a kind of, um, it was a kind of job for me to, to bring this back to, 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 to establish a kind of interdisciplinary discourse between the computer sciences and the media studies. So this is why I'm very heavily focused on, 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 on the research uh, topics and on the research discourses we have in media studies uh, about these things I said, said earlier, like, like preservation and, and simulation and so on. And on the other side, it's um, uh, uh, this that, that the media studies especially in Germany, are regularly not very entangled with technology. Uh, they are speaking about technology and they are using technology and there are debates on, on uh, technology and, and, and its influence on society and on culture. But uh, these, uh, these, these discuss, discussions and discourses are not technologic, technologically. Uh, so you will rarely find a code or you will rarely find a... a, 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 a a schematic from a from a computer board within such discourses, uh, because um, there are th some kind of hurdles um, that are, that had been built between the humanities and the uh, and the and the um, the mint, <coughs> the STEM um, departments, and I tried to like break down these hurdles a bit uh, to to. Um, um, to, to tell the humanities about technology and the uh, um, the ideas that that you can get if you if you um, think more technologically about techniques and on the other side to 
uh, teach the the computer scientists and the STEM departments um, to to think more about uh, uh, the epistemological and the 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 archaeological ways uh, to to um, uh, uh, of their topics. Yeah, this is this is a quite a good observation. Uh, it reminds me of the of the sheer endless talks we had on game studies conferences when it comes to the um, to the enormous gap between um, the theoretical sides of game studies or game research and the actual uh, game designers or game developers, right? Yeah, this is one. I'm 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 more or less a kind of exotic. Uh, participant on those uh, um, conferences when or, or even in, in, in essay collections when it comes to to write a book about a specific topic on games that I uh, always bring in or try to bring in some technology technology and some technical stuff um, into the discourse to to enrich the discourse from this side and um, I think it is nearly impossible to talk about games and not at least think about the technological side just on the discourses and aesthetics talking about um, just uh, um, about the discourses and aesthetics would more or less lead into into a kind of um, um, problem uh, that that computer gaming and video gaming is a kind of technological thing to do and um, um, it, it connects the human body to a machine and this is of uh, Rudolf uh, the first thing I wrote about uh, in, of one, in one of your books um, uh, uh, connecting an analog an analog uh, body the analog body of the player to the digital machine and how to make them speak about is not just a, a topic of sociology or of, of uh, psychology but also of technology yeah yeah, and I can definitely confirm hereby that whenever uh, we we work together on such uh, on such um, books or anthologies, um, it's a very enriching uh, lecture. Whenever a new text from you comes in, I have to really dig dig in, you know, to understand. But it's so it's rewarding, right? Because it's uh, it opens up my perspectives over the years so much. So it's a really a good job great job you're doing there in your next chapter you introduce the concept of computer archaeology regarding its theoretical and methodological background Um, could you please elaborate a bit on this in order to get a better understanding for our listeners yeah, yeah, of course. Um, as I said earlier, um, this all is based on the ideas of media archaeology stemming from Wolfgang Ernst and Friedrich Kittler from the 1980s, 1990s and early 2000s. And media archaeology always had been uh, two kinds of sciences. One is the is, is a methodological way and the other is the theor- theoretical uh, way. The methodological uh, way is interested in uh, looking on um, looking on on historiographies, how historiographies are written, uh, what are the the powers that figure historiographies? As we learned from Foucault, there are dispositives that 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 uh, build uh, uh, historiographies and any other discourses. And um, what are the ways uh, uh, the the uh, the matters that are uh, um, 
or, or um, let, 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 let it put it in another way, um, if, if, a, if a matter like a computer um, is, to be, is to be described uh, in an historiography, there's something uh, that, that uh, um, um, can't be put into words can't be put into ideas uh, into human language and uh, these are the things media archaeology is interested in a methodological way to find out how to properly describe technological things or media technology um, in 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 historiographies can they be even be of written media history or is a written media history always Uh, 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 does it always lack uh, uh, some ideas that can't be put into words and um, how to find methods to do it anyways so and the theoretical way um, strongly depends on on this methodological thinking Um, it uh, tries to find out uh, together with Foucault and Friedrich Kittler um, how to Uh, or, or how history, uh, thinking about history and, and historiographical uh, writing um, depends on specific uh, ideas of culture, on specific ideas we have in our minds and on specific ways we write our historiographies. And for the theoretical way, I use two thinkers um, to, to, to um, tell about the problem. The first is Hayden White, um, Most historic uh, history uh, um, scientists and historians, uh, um, Hayden White's um, uh, works are well known from the 1980s. He he tried to find out if there is any connection between fictional writing and writing historiographies, writing history, and he established a kind of meta meta history. Um, and this meta history tried to find out. Uh, what were the ways historians wrote down their historical ideas. And he found out it's very similar to the ways fictional authors write down their fictions. So we have to think about the story and we have to put things into our story and leave other things that not uh, good for the story or that's... That, 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 uh, um, um, Of, uh, 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 leave those things out. And the, the other thinker was Robin Collingwood from the 1940s, a, um, a philosopher. And Robin, Co- Robin Collingwood um, had the interesting idea of the reenactment. He said, um, historical thinking is always a re- uh, reenactment of history. Um, so we can't think about uh, uh, the past. Anytime we think about a thing uh, that had, had been happened in the past, we, we get it in the into the presence and we are thinking right now about this and we are working in our heads with the historical ideas to make them present ideas and both um both ways from hayden white to criticize the discursive way to write about history and the ideas of robin collingwood to say that everything happens in the moment even thinking about the past i put together as a theory for computer archaeology so um, I think about computers and um, about the writing um, of computers, and I, I, I examined uh, di- four or five different historiographies uh, to, 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 to point to the ways uh, they wrote down their stories uh, in terms of Hayden White. And um, um, I try to establish a, a theory that um, can be used properly to describe computers and their past. Um, 
where computers are not only hardware that had been put into the shelves of any museum, but uh, there are operative media technology that are that are always in presence. So if you switch on your Commodore 64, you won't be back in 1982, but your Commodore 64 from 1982 is in 2022. And you are doing things you are doing right now with it, like uh, Robin Collingwood said. So, but how to write about that? How, how, how can I write a book about computer archaeology uh, when I first said that writing is not the proper way to speak about computers? Um, so, I try to establish some ways uh, and, and some some um, methods uh, putting ideas onto paper. And the first thing is uh, using mathematics and electronics and programming languages. And as you have uh, as you probably have has seen, the book is full of diagrams and program code and things like that. Uh, that shows in quite another way how computer operations are. Um, going on than just speaking about that. And the other way um, was to find out um, that you, that even this is not sufficient to tell about a computer process that happens right now. You have to demonstrate it. So as you will know from, from conferences of game studies, uh, playing some some seconds a game to show the the uh, the audience what the game is like is is way more better than just speaking about it so let the computer demonstrate itself let let it put the things you are speaking about uh, in 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 non-human in a non-human way um, to show the audience uh, uh, what what it does and not to speak about that and these these two things the theoretical way and the uh, methodological way I put together and uh, and and um, called it computer archaeology. Yeah, right. I was just thinking about the when I talk about um, video game essays, for example, um, we often do wonder how how we can uh, pass how we can bypass this this paradigm of text centered. Um, works in when it comes to game studies right because we do talk we do talk about games and we describe them and we try to describe them most the the, the most accurate way possible but it never comes close to the actual um seeing it in action in real time going down plus and this doesn't include it include at all the the simple experience of gameplay itself so it's really it's really tricky to to conceptualize such such works right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you have to you, i think you always have to uh, have a have a theoretical part where you speak about that and then invite the audiences to come in front uh, and and play some some rounds of the game and and try it out for themselves to get another another idea um but of course it's not only, it's not always possible to do this but i um, uh, i try to do this um, as many as as often as i can and uh, when i write um when i write text about that i um, right now i regularly put code into the text and uh and asks the readers to copy and paste the code to an emulator to find out about the process by, by themselves. But it's, of course, not always possible with any kind of game or game studies uh, topic uh, to do this. Yeah. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Well, that's a good that's a good uh, opportunity to talk about actual practical work because uh, your fourth chapter then has quite a package in store. Altogether, you discuss the aforementioned four retro computing projects that took place within your academic teaching in recent years. And now we all know how hard it is to name your favorite child, but let's try it anyway. Would you please take us through one of these four projects and, of course, your findings? Yeah, yeah, that's hard, of course. But, but I chose, uh, if I shall choose one, I would uh, um, uh, choose the one of gaming, games and simulations, um, um, which is the most game studies-like chapter in the book. Mm. Um, it all starts with the idea of Klaus Piers and his famous Computer Game Worlds book, where he speaks about the invention of Pong, the Pong game from Atari from 1972. And um, there are some, some paragraphs in Piers' book where he uh, compares the Pong game to Klaus, uh, to Ralph Baer's uh, Magnavox Odyssey table tennis game, and that they, that there were f- quite different technologies. And, um, um, but but, but um, as I said earlier, um, um, Klaus Piers um, did this on, only uh, from the from the from the surface, from the viewpoint to the surface. So it looks similar, and if we open the machine, uh, we see quite different uh, technologies. But but he doesn't goes into detail, and this is one thing I wanted to do uh, in two ways. Um, I wanted to find out how tennis games came to the world of video gaming and why tennis games are uh, the f- had been the first topic of video games and uh, for this i did some experimentations as i said earlier with the students of of um, media studies first i uh, made a, a seminar on um, computer game programming in analog and digital computers and um, for this chapter i took the analog part since we Reenacted the Tennis for Two game from William Higginbotham from 1957 on an analog computer we had or we have there at the Media Studies Department, and we we tinkered around with the machine to learn how to program it. It's a quite different way than digital computer programming, and uh, we managed to implement Tennis for Two on this machine. And um, starting from this, um, we moved on to um, to program a Pong game for this Commodore 64, our very own Pong game um, on the Commodore 64. And, um, but, but, but these games um, are one thing. And on the other, on the other side, um, Klaus Piers spoke about bouncing balls, that bouncing balls are the 
uh, are the uh, uh, course for people to think about playing tennis with the computer. Since bounce, uh, uh, to, to simulate a bouncing ball, you would need um, some physics and you would need some mathematics. And William Higginbotham implemented both of it into his analog computer in 1957 when he used a ready-made bouncing ball simulation for his analog computer and uh, let's say, hacked it so so it's not just a ball bouncing on the oscilloscope, but the ball could be played forth and back with two controllers, as we all know. And um, um, the implementation of the bouncing ball is very straight, uh, a, a physical and mathematical thing on the analog computer. You have to know about the 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 laws of physics, the laws of... of um, Of, of, of speed and acceleration and uh, to learn about the falling of the ball and to uh, to implement it with, with analog circuitry. And um, I question myself if the other bouncing ball programs or even the other tennis games used um, this kind of physics in the same way William Higginbotham did this. So did they, did, did, did people like Alcorn for the Pong um, um, Uh, arcade game, or later on the people who programmed the, the spectacular bouncing ball demo for the Amiga, for the Commodore Amiga in 1985, or even basic hackers uh, in the 1980s, did they use the, the very same ideas of implementing physics into their demonstrations and, and games? So I opened those games, like I looked into the codes and the circuitry to find out, okay, How is the ball accelerated with Pong? How is the ball accelerated um, with the technology of Ralph Beer's Magnavox Odyssey? How uh, was the idea of um, bringing, the ball, uh, bringing the ball to bounce uh, within the Amiga Boeing demo and the successes of that? And um, there I saw that, that uh, we have a kind of, a kind of tradition uh, of implementing things like, like how to how to build a, a, a circle on the computer screen or how to um, make, the, make the circle a ball that rotates, which is the uh, uh, Amiga um, bouncing ball uh, demo showing, or how to even how to implement um, a gravitation into the game so the ball falls down to earth and bounces back again. And um, um, I try to compare these different ways um, of putting these algorithms or algorithmic ideas into different kind of programming languages and programming paradigms. And uh, um, it was then when I found out that's not just computer science I did, but literature studies, literature history. Since the, the, uh, the, the programming of an algorithm in a specific way, in a specific programming language, is much like... Um, um, adapt a, a specific topic, let's say from the Homerian Odyssey, uh, uh, in 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 a, in a new novel or a new kind of story, and um, so I used uh, I opened the the long forgotten toolbox of of literature and and uh, literature studies and linguistics uh, that was back in my mind, and uh, tried to apply. Um, methods from the linguistics and the literature, literature studies uh, to examine code history and to, to tell about the, uh, the, the reception processes in code history um, uh, focused on those bouncing ball and tennis games. And I think 
this worked very well since the Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft, DFG, just funded a great research project based on this idea for this new basic project I told about. Yeah, congrats to that. <laughs> It's a great success, actually, yes. Especially in these, uh, let's say, challenging times when it comes to uh, anything related to a financial backup from from these uh, institutions. Um, your Your final chapter then deals with different ways of self-education in the field of computer science. You have already mentioned that. Um, but you also bring this together with the idea of, of gamification. And we all know that's the big buzzword since back in the days, the early 2010s maybe. But what does this, um, this combination then entail exactly for you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, when, I, uh, when I came to the last... Or the to to the uh, the chapter about uh, um, knowledge preservation and the question how people uh, autodidactically learned programming back in the 1980s and how do the retro computing enthusiasts learn about electronics and things today even if they are not from the from the stem um, I, i try to i try to figure out how what, what are the methods for autodidactical Uh, programming learning. Um, um, as I said earlier, there are th ways of learning by doing and uh, trial and error processes. Um, um, and this trial and error process um, holds a specific idea that you sit in front of your computer and you are uh, uh, starting your computer and the computer asks you to enter some some keywords or some, some not, not keywords, some some some, some command in the programming language you use. So you type in a uh, 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 command and press return and either it works and shows you the thing you want to see or it doesn't work and gives you an error. If the computer gives you an error, it plays the ball back to you. So you will think about, oh, what did I do wrong uh, to get this error? How can I uh, correct myself and uh, try it again and again? And in some uh, way, you are in a kind of dialogue with the computing system. So um, this, this dialogue, uh, uh, um, I, I misuse the term of, of um, um, e-learning, as we all know, e-learning, learning with computer technology, uh, to describe this dialogical process of learning. So since programming means you teach the machine a thing that it should do, And um, giving a feedback in form of errors, the, the machine teaches you the things you did wrong. So you can learn about uh, doing it right and um, the ball goes forth and back between you and the machine. And this is kind of is a kind of e-learning. And gamification uh, comes uh, uh, to the discourse um, when you find out that you are Of course, you're an autodidact, but but you are not a, a solipsist. So you live in a in a in a community, and there are others other people who use the same computer or the same programming language as you do, and you start to um, compare with them. You start to send around code snippets and to use code snippets from others and to refine code snippets and to to adapt uh, 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 ready-made programs you find in magazines, and um, then it comes to a challenge in between. Uh, uh, the communities uh, and this challenge um, features some some aspects of of gamification processes. So, uh, uh, um, 
like, like uploading a game onto GitHub is to show your skills to others so that they can compare themselves with you, which is the thing uh, most most um, gamification processes do as well. Um, when the game when, when the gamification uh, is put to to other processes like like learning mathematics, uh, showing the results to others is uh, a kind of uh, feedback or a kind of force feedback others to do to do it as good as you did it, and. Um, um, this these gamification processes, um, which is not, not not the proper way of gamification, since there is no economic background for this or or, or background that 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 enforces um, in a direct way, but but in a very indirect way to 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 work on yourself and to learn more and to be better and to become better. This can be can be uh, seen uh, today and even back in the in the nineteen eighties. Um, when Sherry Turkle like uh, wrote uh, her book *The Second Self* in nineteen, she published it in nineteen eighty four. She uh, described um, 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 school children in first grade, second grade, fourth, third, and fourth grade um, how they learned programming the logo programming language. And even there, you can find these gamification processes where the kids exchanged their ideas and compared uh, with each other and even got 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 some kind of of, of um, uh, scores uh, f- f- when they when they uh, wrote their programs like like uh, <clears throat> I I could uh, program this with only four lines and you used eight lines so four is the score and eight is the score to compare with each other and other things like that so um, this gamification is more or less like like a let's say a metaphor for the pro the, for the for the interactive processes uh, of gaining knowledge uh, when we are not only by ourselves but within communities or within uh, hacker spaces or within school classes to learn program i see so um let me think about this for a second so this whole so basically, what you're tr- what you're saying is that this idea of gamification actually is, of course, much much older than than you would think if you just uh, focus upon gamification as a buzzword, right? Yes, yes, yes. And uh, this is one one thing you can read by Rolf uh, um, at Rolf Noor. Uh, he he researches gamification and things like that, and found out that that it that it, it even. Uh, there were even processes in the Middle Ages uh, that could be described as gamification. So I would use the term. Um, uh, Ian Bogus suggested uh, uh, to d- don't use the term gamification since it's uh, it's a bad thing um, uh, to, to do with computer games to put them into quite different with quite quite different purposes onto a different process but i but i would use it as a metaphor of a kind of playful interaction a kind of playful interaction where the outcome is not only is not only measured with 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 money or with time or things like that but but with very very uh, with 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 um uh, things uh, you you gain from the specific era you are uh, you are into. So in the 1950s, the students at MIT had a gamification process that that was, was called code bumming, where uh, the students tried to shorten codes others had written 
um, so they, they had a they had a, a drawer in the uh, computer room and in, inside this drawer were the computer codes uh, stored from the other students and uh, it's uh, every morning one opened that drawer got out the codes and said ah, I can do this tighter and I can do this better and I can make a smaller thing of that and, and wrote it and put it back into the drawer so the next morning others could get the code and uh, bump it uh, uh, by themselves and this is of course the gamification process um, even if there is no outcome in the in the news uh, in the new uh, way gamification is about. so uh, one could even argue it's uh, within this Within these two poles of Ludus and Pida, there's it's Pida with benefits, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Pida with benefits. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And and um, I think I think every time we are we are um, we are we are switching on our computer, we are in, in a kind of game, in a kind of uh, will it work? Uh, can I can I know this? Uh, can I use this computer for this purpose and so on? Well, Stefan, we have taken up a lot of your time, actually. Um, please uh, tell us, what are you working on right now? Uh, I, mean, I mean, you already have told us a bit about it. And, of course, what will you be playing yeah, okay. next? Um, um, I, I did not talk uh, very uh, closely to uh, about the topic I'm working on right now. But it's, it is more on proper computer games than the thing I did with Open History. Um, the research project I told about is a basic um, um, programs that had been uh, printed in magazines back in the 80s, um, which were more or less uh, hobbyistic projects from, from teenagers and young adults uh, uh, who learned to program the computer by themselves and to um, program the a nice game and sent in the code to that magazine and the magazine published that game code. So um, I would, I will focus on such game codes for different computer platforms from the 1980s published in different computer magazines on in different locations like Germany, Eastern Europe and America and Great Britain. And I want to find out by looking at those codes, how the specific pro way of programming computer games for those machines uh, tells about the computer cultures back in the day and the gaming cultures when it comes to basic games and to, uh, yeah, which is quite like public domain games uh, today. Um, and um, this is why I would uh, play um, many, many basic programmed games on my um, vintage computing computer platforms. Um, so um, I have a PlayStation 5 here and a PlayStation 3 and the kids have uh, uh, a Nintendo Switch, but I have no time to play uh, Lost Horizon. I, I said Lost Horizon, the Lost uh, Horizon, the Horizon game. <laughs> I, guess, I just played, yes, I just yes. played five <laughs> minutes of that <laughs> because I, I always have to play basic games, which is quite more fun to me. Um, so the next um, games I will <laughs> play are for, for the Atari home computer, 8-bit home computer platforms um, published in Germany. And I will play them for, uh, for a talk I will give in November at the History of Games conference. Um, so I don't can tell about the, 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 the titles of the games, but it surely will be basic games for the Atari 8-bit computers. Okay. And that sounds like a great project then. 
I want to thank you for being on the show today, and I really enjoyed it. So please, Stefan, take care. Thank you very much. And goodbye.